Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is musician, vocalist, and mixer Robert Martin. First of all, Twitch may become a source of royalties for artists, songwriters, record labels, and publishers. It turns out that gamers have been getting away with using music for free for a long time. That was until June, when record labels send out thousands of infringement notifications. Now, the problem was that Twitch didn't handle this real well. It basically gave the offenders just three days to delete the clips, and they had to delete everything, and there was no way to contest the infringements. Now, the real problem here is Twitch is owned by Amazon. And you'd think Amazon would know better since it has Amazon Music, but which has no music rights agreements with the major labels. So therein lies the problem. The company has since launched something called Soundtrack that allows gamers to use licensed music, but it's only for live stream. Of course, the real problem here is that gamers want to use the music from the game, but of course that's infringing, so it's not going to happen. A big problem here is there's no recourse for the gamers to actually go back and say, wait a second, You may have this wrong. Unlike YouTube with their content ID, which at least gives you three strikes and also provides a way that you can contest any infringement action that you might be getting. Regardless of the problem here, it looks like at some point in the near future, the music industry is going to be getting a brand new royalty stream. And it's going to be a big one because Twitch has a lot of users who are spending a lot of time online. And as a result, There could be a big payday for some artists, songwriters, and record labels down the line soon. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, if you've read any of my blogs, or if you've listened to this podcast, then you know that frequently I bring up the fact that, really, when it comes to speaker technology and microphone technology, Not much has changed in more than 100 years. Yeah, we've had some really nice advances, but we've only had evolutions. We haven't had revolutions. They both basically work the same as they always did. However, there may be something new that could break that. There's an Israeli company called Novato, and they have something called sound beaming. Now, what it does is it actually finds where your ears are, and it shoots a series of ultrasonic waves that form pockets of sound around your ears. So you can hear without actually putting on headphones. Now it's very directional, but that being said, if you do move your head one way or the other, it's going to follow you. The beauty of this is that people will be able to hear things like games, television, directions in their car, anything like that, without others actually hearing the same thing. This all happens in real time. It seems to work really well. We've seen things like this before, but the real problem has always been the fact that the frequency response is pretty nominal at best. So you're not getting what we think of as high fidelity at all. It's usually kind of a telephone frequency band where you're getting mostly mid-range. This could change, however, and if that happens, that could change our playback technology forever. So follow this closely. Novato sound beaming. It may be the way we hear music in the future. My guest this week is musician Robert Martin, who is a longtime member of Frank Zappa's band, the musical director for Bette Midler, and toured or performed with Paul McCartney, Michael McDonald, Stevie Nicks, Boz Skaggs, Etta James, Patti LaBelle, Bonnie Raitt, Kenny Loggins, and many more. Robert also recorded with Prince, the Moody Blues, Lyle Lovett, Gladys Knight, the OJs, the Blues Brothers, and a long list of other artists. He played and mixed and co-produced Wilson Pickett's 1987 Grammy-nominated album, American Soul Man, 
and composed the music for television shows Sybil, Baywatch, Martial Law, and three seasons of Lifetime Television's Intimate Portrait series. Robert also presents live master classes with a special focus on the advanced harmony and theory of Frank Zappa. During the interview, we shared some Frank Zappa stories, talked about playing on the famed Philadelphia International Records, Hammond Organs, working with Wilson Pickett, and much more. I spoke with Robert via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. Let's go back to when you got started, and I want to hear about your time in Philly. Well, it really started with the fact that my uh, my parents uh, were opera singers. <laughs> uh, they had the opposite lead roles in the 1939 Philadelphia Cosmopolitan Opera Company production of Gilbert and Solomon's Mikado. My mom was Yum Yum, and my dad was Nanky Poo. Their characters in the show got married, and they got married for real. So it was like one of those, you know, one of those showbiz stories. And so right from from popping out of the womb, I was just exposed to all kinds of things. And Philly in the 50s was, I was born in 48, actually. Uh, Philly in the 50s was just a great, great time to, to grow up, to be absorbing all kinds of music. I mean, the jazz scene was always strong. Their culture lived in Philly for a while. Yeah. Uh, the Philly Orchestra has always been one of the greatest in the world. I ended up studying with uh, many of the first chair players and various conductors. And, uh, um, and of course, American Bandstand uh, was in Philly. I was watching, by the way, check this out. I was watching before Dick Clark was on. It used to be Bob Horn's American Bandstand. Dick Clark came in, I think, in 1956. But before that, it was Bob Horn. And uh, so, you know, everything was going on in Philly then. So I was just soaking it all in. And and uh, we had good uh, we had good music uh, programs in the schools where I went. They gave me a French horn when I was in fourth grade, nine years old. And, and uh, so there was just all kind of good stuff hitting me every single day. But when I really got started into play, well, I was actually playing professionally by the time I was 14. I was, uh, I was uh, like a Ray Charles freak when I was uh, when I was nine years old, which was 1957. I first heard him on the radio, and uh, he had an amazing tenor sax player named David Fathead Newman at the time. And I heard Fathead, and I thought, "Oh man, that is the coolest sound I have ever heard. I have to make that sound." And I finally. Uh, prevailed upon my junior high band teacher to let me have a saxophone the summer between eighth grade and ninth grade. He gave me a saxophone and a book with the fingerings and I taught myself to play. And, and by the end of the summer, I was gigging. I was 14 by that time. And I was, I was gigging at age 14 uh, on saxophone. So that was really the beginning uh, uh, as far as playing professionally. And then a few years later, when I, when I really got deep into uh, French horn studies at Curtis, uh, I, I made some connections and started doing sessions at Sigma. Uh, all of that Gamble and Huff and then Gamble, Huff and Bell, great stuff that was going on when the, when the Philly sound just exploded. And, and uh, I, I didn't even know at the time how big of an impact we were having worldwide until later on when I was... In the 80s, I was touring, uh, uh, it was my second tour with Stevie Nicks, and, and the, uh, the keyboard player was a British guy that said, oh, man, you played on that stuff that, that, that blew my mind when I was a kid. I grew up on that stuff, and, and he was, like, amazed that I had played on me and Mrs. Jones and Backstabbers and Love Train and all that stuff. And, uh, you know, we, we, uh, we, we had a ball in those sessions. I mean, that was back in the day when we had – 30 people all in the same room at the same time, moving air together, linoleum tile floor, no, no isolation anywhere. We had live drum in front of that, a live bass amp, Ronnie Baker on bass, three live guitar amps, nothing in front of them, no blankets over them, blowing across just a few feet away from the French horn mics and the string mics and, and everything leaking onto everything. Uh, Joe Tarzia at the controls, great engineer. Yeah. And those could still sound great. It was just good players. Uh, the, the, the two things I learned uh, very quickly. Number one, show up early. 
Number two, play it right the first time. <laughs> you do those two things, you'll get called back again and again. So that's why for years I did those sessions and uh, right up until the time I, I moved out to California. Well, let's talk about that. So you, you're successful doing sessions in Philly and probably one of the handful that are doing that. Why did you decide to go to Los Angeles? Uh, I got, uh, I, I was doing a gig. I, I play a lot of things. As you mentioned, I was doing a, a keyboard gig uh, and on that gig, it was out, uh, at one of the colleges West of the city. I forget which one it was. And there was a guy on there playing pedal steel. I'd never worked with a pedal steel player before. Uh, and, uh, we got to talking in between sets and he said, Hey man, I just got a call, uh, to do some sessions out in LA. I, and I think you'd be great to, to be involved in this thing. It's with Ingrid Croce, Jim Croce's widow, uh, who was also, you know, from the Philly area originally. And she was uh, at that point out in San Diego. So she flew us out there. I went out there and did those sessions. It went real well. Uh, she wanted uh, us to work with her permanently. And um, uh, she was uh, quite sure that she was going to get a deal. And the music was good. It was solid. Um, but the deal didn't happen. And, and so there I was in San Diego, uh, with not much going on. And in the interim period, when I had left Philly and moved out to San Diego, uh, one of the other guys from the jazz fusion band I had been playing in back in Philly, he had, he had moved uh, to LA when I went out to, uh, to San Diego. And so when the, when the thing kind of fell apart in San Diego, I called him up and went up to L.A. and I've been there ever since. <laughs> it was tough. It was tough at first. I mean, I, I was playing in bar bands, which in L.A. at that time was a horrible, horrible scene. You did not want to be there. And, and the, uh, the, the crowd, they didn't care. It was very, very different from the scene. When I, when I, was, uh, when I first left school, I was playing in bar bands in south jersey shore and and uh you know the tri-state area around philadelphia it was great there were a lot of killer bands yep. and the crowds came out you had a following they came to see you and they whooped and hollered and had a great time and a few years later and on the other coast in california in the mid by the time it got to be the mid-70s and the music scene was changing disco was starting to happen and and uh, everybody was just there to get drunk and score and and you were wallpaper and they didn't care. So it was tough <laughs> from, from going from the scene that I had been involved in and then getting involved in that. It was, it was difficult. But after a few months, I, I made enough connections to, uh, to support myself without having to do that anymore. I started doing sessions. I started doing a lot of better live gigs. Etta James was one of the first connections I made in LA. And uh, that turned out to be a, a wonderful situation. She was just the most generous mentor to me. She was wonderful to work with. I first saw her, I remember I saw her on Bandstand. I was eight years old and she was 18. And she just had her first record in like 1956. And then this happened to me a lot. 20 years later, I'm working with her. And, uh, and you know, uh, again, things, situations like that did, did come up a lot. Years after I had been kind of like, wow, Zappa is amazing. And then, you know, 20 years later, I'm, I'm with him too, or 15 years later. But that was, uh, that was one of the first connections. And Etta always encouraged me to sing with her. She, she heard right away that I had some pipes and she said, come on, Bobby, sing with me. And that in itself was like a PhD level, uh, level uh, education. I always kind of think of it as uh, I... I attended the Church of Etta James for 15 years, and I went to Zappa University for 12 years as well. So those were my uh, my ongoing education experience. Well, let's go there for a second. So here's a kid that's doing R&B sessions in Philly, and then you're at Etta James, and then Frank Zappa, which, you know, <laughs> it's, yeah. it's apple and oranges there. So how did the Zappa thing come up? Well, that came up because actually um, when, uh, like I said, I started working with Etta in 76. Then in 77, uh, I got a call from, from the guys uh, back in Woodstock in the group Orleans. They were looking to do some personnel changes and heard about me and, and gave me a call and flew me back there. I auditioned for that gig and got it. But it took 
like a year and a half for Orleans to get out of their old contract and into the new one. So it was a big lag there between the time I got that gig and we actually did something. So in the interim couple of years, 77, 78, uh, I was continuing to tour with Edda and, and do various other things. In fact, 78, we opened for the Rolling Stones on their U.S. tour, which uh, I, I've got some, some fun stories from that, too. But, oh, but we'll jump past that because we're going a little bit further. So, so uh, then in 79, the Orleans gig actually happened. Uh, they finally got the contractual thing down, and I, went, I flew back again east to... Uh, uh, to do to make that record with them in the fall of 79 uh, and we started touring in in uh, 79 and 80 and their guitar tech at that time or their their tech crew the head of the tech crew that at that time was a guy named dave rob it was the orleans uh, tech crew and uh after orleans made some further changes and and that situation was over and i decided to move back to la again in 80 and Dave Robb, the Orleans tech guy, also went out to L.A. and somehow or other got the connection and, and became Frank's guitar tech. So when Frank was uh, putting the band together for his 81 tour, Dave was, uh, Dave was involved then. And he was watching Frank just tearing his hair out, going through one audition or after another after another and just not finding the right person for that last slot in the band. He had the whole band set up, but he just needed one more person. And uh, so finally Dave told him about me. And so I got a call one evening saying, okay, tomorrow morning you have a Zappa audition. So I'm like, okay, <laughs> I can either stay up all night and try and learn a bunch of stuff and shed a bunch of stuff uh, and drive myself crazy and drag my butt in there tomorrow and probably be non-functional. Or I can go to bed, relax, go down there, be who I am, do what I do, and see if it works. And I decided to take the latter choice there, and, and it worked out great. My, my uh, Zappa audition story, unlike many, it was a lot of fun. I mean, uh, you, you probably have heard uh, as well some horror stories about some really solid fine musicians just folding at a Zappa audition because it was just insane. I mean, sight reading the black page and stuff like that. Well, I actually have a story about that and especially about the black page. Right. So Frank one day says, uh, you know, I'm looking for, and this must've been somewhere around the time you're getting with them. And I don't remember the, the, the year. Said it was 84 or so that you were I, I guess, but this doesn't quite make sense when, when I think about it. Because one day he said, you know, I'm looking for a keyboard player. Do you know anybody? And I had gone to Berkeley, and there was a teacher there that was great. He was a great sight reader, and was, we thought he'd be really good. So, And he happened to have just moved out to L.A. So Frank said, yeah, bring him in, and here's a couple of pieces for him to learn. And one is the black page. Right. <laughs> so he has a week to learn this, and he kind of takes it lightly. Oh, uh, bad mistake. Yeah, sort of goes through it, but doesn't really know it. And Frank sussed this out immediately. And, and the guy had, had a bit of an attitude, too, and you know what Frank is like with that. So w what happened is he started to play, and he got about, oh, I don't know, 16 bars into it, and Frank says, wait, wait, stop, stop, stop. Okay, um, play it again, but don't use your thumbs. <laughs> so now he's trying to play this without his thumbs, which is impossible. And then, so he, he Frank is obviously just messing with him at that point. <laughs> then he gets another eight bars and said, "Wait, wait, wait. Okay, start from the end and play it backwards, but without your thumbs." And he's going through all of this, and finally, at the end, Frank looks at him and says, "You know, you're good, but you're not that good." <laughs> I think he said something else like, I know three other people that can play this and they're all drummers, something like that. You know? <laughs> well, that may well have been 84 because uh, when I joined in 81, Tommy Mars was the primary keyboard player, Tommy Mariano. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Tommy Mars, everybody knew him as Tommy Mars. Brilliant, brilliant player and musician and uh, to my mind, the perfect foil for Frank as far as being in the keyboard chair in the Zappa milieu, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and Tommy was, 
I don't remember exactly why, but when we were getting ready for the 84 tour, Tommy was not going to be involved. So Frank was looking for a keyboard player in 84. Okay. Uh, he wanted somebody to be, because I, you know, I play keyboards, but I wasn't like the main techno whiz, uh, insane keyboard player. I was more of a, an R&B kind of a player. And I could play the classical stuff and read the technical stuff. Uh, but as far as ripping off a blazing solo, that's Tommy Mars. Yeah, yeah, right. So he needed that that guy uh, in the band again. So uh, we ended up uh, uh, with a another brilliant player uh, named Alan Zavad. Alan has has left us now, unfortunately. Yeah. Long rest in peace, Alan. Uh, but he he used to play with uh, Jean Luc Ponty, who of course had connections with Zappa and all that. So. Uh, so Alan was uh, was a great choice uh, for the '84 band. So it may well have been uh, that that time that you're talking about. So you were at Zappa for a long time. A lot of people couldn't handle that, actually. So we, and you were there for 12 years. That's a long, long time. You obviously got a, along well with them. Yeah. Um, well, you know, once you get past the point where he gets it that okay, you can cut it musically. And you can get along with other people, uh, and you're not an asshole. You're good. You know that's yeah. uh, those two. Uh, you can cut it musically, and you're not an asshole with the other people. Those there's another two lessons that uh, yeah that you pick up on. Uh, if you have those two characteristics, uh, you're you're going to be okay. So actually, there are there are two other musicians. There are only three of us that uh, that joined the band in '81 and played every tour from that point on. And that's, aside from myself, is uh, Chad Wackerman, the drummer, and Scott Toon is the bass player. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we did every tour from 81 on. There's plenty I want to talk about with you, but before we go, just tell me your favorite Zappa story. Oh, uh, <laughs> there's there's a lot. There's a lot. But I'll tell you, one that's that's particularly fun could have destroyed my career, actually, but... Frank handled in in uh, in just a wonderful Zappa esque way. There's a song you're probably familiar with called uh, "Why Does It Hurt When I Pee," mm-hmm. and uh, at the end of it, uh, all together in in three part harmony, we're singing "Why Does It? Why Does It? Why Does It Hurt?" Off, when off, I, and then you know. So that's the ending. So there's three long held notes there. So the first uh, when we came to the first one. Just on one particular night, I don't remember where where it was, but it was my first tour. It was 81. Frank got a bug up his butt and decided he was just going to hold it forever. <laughs> and so he held it, and we're, we're there, like, turning blue in the face. And, and uh, uh, I held it longer than anybody because I, I just have crazy lungs from all the years of playing French horn and all that kind of stuff and opera singer parents. And, and so, so he, he, you know, he kind of in a way, intentionally embarrassed us by holding it beyond the point of human capability. Uh, and so, so I, I'm thinking, okay, second notes coming up. I'm going to, I'm going to mess with him because he just messed with me. So he holds it out for a long time and then he cuts it off. He, he didn't just help hold it forever until we died. He cut it off, but I kept singing. I kept holding the note and he, he cut me off and I kept holding the note. He cut me off again. I kept holding the note and I gave him the finger oh. in concert in front of the audience on stage. I gave Frank the finger and said, you messed with me. I'm going to mess with you. And, and, uh, uh, I realized just as I had done it, I said, Oh my God, I could have just killed my career. Yeah. But he just kind of, you know, just kind of tilted his head back and laughed and said, yeah, okay, I get it. And, and everything was cool from that point on. Uh, in fact, if anything, uh, our relationship was better after that. So, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I, you know, anybody that kind of pushed back on him, he respected. Yeah, yeah. I was around a lot from uh, when he was big buddies for a short time with Larry Flint. Oh, right, right. And Larry had just been shot. And he felt that the only person he could trust was Frank. Huh. He'd come up there with a couple of bodyguards and he would tell stories about, you know, the CIA is out in front. And Frank would go, no, you, you know what? No, I, I don't think so. And it was just the opposite because nobody would stand up to Larry either. And Frank was the only person that would, you know, call bullshit on him. You know, there's some great stories, actually. All right. So you're playing with Frank and I'm sure that suddenly gave you a big burst of credibility 
Oh, absolutely. I didn't have to audition for anything after that. Ah, uh, that's where I was, I was going with invited, it. Invited yeah. after after the '82 tour, I was invited to join Bette Midler's band, uh, which in itself was just a crazy good band. At that point, uh, uh, the first tour I did with her, I did two tours with her in '83. I toured with her again, and, t- and uh, at that point, took over as her MD. But in '82, when I was first asked to join the band. The band was, uh, Bobby Lyle was band director, brilliant uh, keyboard player, I call him the genie for good reason. Buzzy Featon on guitar, uh, Ricky Lawson on drums from Michael Jackson's band, Robert Pops Popwell on bass from the Jazz Crusaders, uh, and I was playing uh, B3 and, and synth and French horn and saxophone and, and singing and doing all that stuff. Uh, and a percussionist from Gambia named Milando Gassama. So I was between Milando and, and uh, Buzzy. And then there was uh, Pops and Ricky and, and Bobby. And the, oh, what, a, what an insanely great band it was. It was just, just popping, just slamming. So that was a... And to be asked to join that, that organization just on reputation. Oh, you play with Frank? You can do anything. Come on, you got the gig. And that's how things were from that point on. So absolutely, you're, you're right. You're dead on. Yeah. Tell me about Wilson Pickett. Oh, Wilson Pickett, man. That was a trip. That was uh, 87. That was the only year in the 80s that I did not tour. Every other year, I was basically living out of a suitcase and traveling the world, which was great fun. I mean, uh, I got paid very well to do what I love to do with great players and, and see all these wonderful places all around the world and meet all kinds of people and all kinds of cultures. And, and, uh, so it was just an amazing experience. 87, <clears throat> a good friend of mine that I've worked with for many years, you probably know Bob Margulis. No, oh, of course. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> we worked together a lot. He was another one of the first connections I made when I went, moved from San Diego up to LA in 76. So, Bob started calling me for everything he did. And, and uh, so 10 years later, he got a call from Motown. They were going to, they had signed Wilson and they were going to do basically his comeback album on Motown in 1987. It's called American Soul Man. Uh, I'm pretty sure we got Grammy nominations for that. But I, uh, Bob kind of looked at me like his secret weapon as as did many people at that point because I could do I could cover a lot of bases and cover them really well so I got involved in deeply in in that record uh, in just about every aspect I was playing keyboards I was doing horn arrangements playing in the horn sections doing uh, vocal arrangements singing in the background sessions with the waters you probably know the waters sure, too yeah. the waters and uh Playing, uh, playing like the sax solo on the remake of Midnight Hour, and and uh, we did the record at uh, a couple of different places: the record plant, the LA record plant. We did some work up at the Sausalito record plant as well. Uh, a studio in Burbank. I, I I'm spacing on the name of it, but what it was one of the early Synclav studios where uh, we were using the Synclav for a lot of the stuff, but. That was an amazing, uh, amazing experience. Again, one of those situations where I'm working with somebody that was like I idolized when I was a kid. I thought, man, I wish I could sing like this guy. And and uh, speaking of singing, everybody knows Wilson Pickett as this just shouter, belter, Land of a Thousand Dances, Midnight Hour, uh, 99 and a Half, all those kind of up-tempo things. But man... He can kill a ballad. He will just shred you on a ballad. And uh, he finished the take on one of these things, and I was literally weeping into the faders. And uh, so that that uh, that that whole experience, working with all those people and uh, and Wilson, and experiencing his uh, his uh, iconic magnificence, if you will, as a as an R and B maven you know and and uh, groundbreaker was just uh, uh, an amazing experience you've also done some television work as well yeah yeah so uh, I, i've done that in a number of ways i uh uh i was composer for uh, the civil show major cbs uh, primetime show uh, through the 90s 
did some uh, like movie of the week stuff occasionally. Then got into uh, uh, er, in uh, late nineteen in late ninety nine, early two thousand. Uh, I got involved with a composers group that was doing like Baywatch. Uh, the one guy wrote wrote the theme for Baywatch. He made a lot of money. Yeah, no kidding. That. Yeah, because that show ran for twelve years worldwide and every time that theme plays it's like like the uh you know uh, paul anka wrote the, the tonight shows yeah, theme yeah. just you know made a made a fortune on that one uh, on that one song but anyway i i got into uh to that group of four composers and we were doing uh baywatch and i was doing music ed- editing for baywatch as well and uh we were doing martial law and then we got involved with uh, Lifetime Television Intimate Portrait Series, which was biographies of, of uh, groundbreaking women in various aspects of life. And so that was a lot of fun, too. I did uh, the music for J-Lo's biography and, uh, and various other people like that. Uh, who was it? That was Meg Ryan's mom. I think she was, uh, what the heck was her name? She was in The Birds, the, the, the Hitchcock flick. Oh, yeah, I know who you mean. Right, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I did music for her biography and various other people. So that that was a lot of fun, a lot of pressure. And that this was in the days when, uh, before the whole iMovie on your inside your computer was happening, and so we were using tape. <clears throat> so we were like FedExing tapes back and forth between production companies in New York and and our office in L.A. and and. Uh, it, it was it was a nightmare in a lot of ways. There were a lot of shows. For instance, Baywatch. You didn't even see anything until picture was locked. Wow. Uh, there was not going to be any more visual changes. Yeah. But with these shows, these lifetime television shows, we would do. They would send us a, a video of like uh, the cold open, like a, a two minute uh, series of of scenes and things, uh, giving you a. a, a an overview of what the show was going to be about. So we would write that two minute thing. And then uh, two days later, they'd send us a recut and it was different. And then, you know, so you had to rewrite like three, four times. And sometimes you'd have to rewrite the whole darn show three or four times. And it just became, you know, not worth the money to, to (laughs) do the work for four shows for one show. Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know if you have an experience in that world, but uh, it, it's, it was pretty crazy, at least as it was being done by those particular folks at that particular time with the technology that was available at that time. I actually had some songs in Baywatch. I still get paid very little. Wow, okay. <laughs> very small checks. Different than scoring it, though. Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I still I still get a little bit. Of, it, it dwindles every year, though. It's almost gone. It's almost gone now. Uh, they, uh, it's funny when you look back at it. When I when I think back about like watching the movie Amadeus and and the stuff that musicians have been dealing with for like a couple hundred years, it reminds me of uh, of a joke I saw about uh, Christopher Lloyd, the guy that plays the the crazy scientist in Back to the Future. Sure, yeah. Uh, the 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 joke was about he he went off to the future and he comes back and he said, Marty. I just came back from the future. You're not going to believe this. Musicians, 100 years from now, are still playing for 100 bucks a night. <laughs> and it's true. I mean, yeah. you know, we, <laughs> we have had to put up with some some uh, uh, difficult things in terms of money and treatment and coming through the kitchen. Uh, you can't come in the front door. Oh, yeah. And, uh, you know. <laughs> yeah, all that stuff. You have also done theater, and that's a left turn as well. Yeah, uh, I've done theater actually or in early years, uh, actually in my late teens, uh, in in the show itself, in the cast. But then in later years, uh, I got involved with uh, out here in L.A. with a couple of theater groups uh, in terms of being the band, but my favorite one, I don't know if you uh, have ever heard of these guys. There's a troupe out here called, uh, the Troubadour theater company. Mm. And they do, uh, they, they generally at the time I, I worked with them for about, uh, I don't know, four or five years. And their, their standard routine was in the summer, 
they would do they would do two shows a year, one in the summer and for a couple of weeks run, and then uh, uh, one in the winter around around Christmas. So the summer show was generally a Shakespeare play that they would take and tweak up the uh, the book and and make it bawdy and hilarious more so than it already may have been for, for Shakespeare and all, and then insert music and I mean jam it in there any way they could, uh, but do it in a way that just was uh, hilarious and worked really great. Some of the some of my favorites that we did with them were, uh, for instance, um, uh, my favorite one was Hamlet, the artist formerly known as Prince of Denmark. <laughs> so obviously that was Hamlet with music of Prince. Yeah. And we did Fleetwood Macbeth. And uh, and we did much of Doobie Brothers about nothing. Oh, I love it. Uh, and, uh, so so that was there. That was the summer show, and they were they were spontaneous and witty and quick and hilarious. And the fourth wall was broken constantly in those shows. We were actually on stage with them with the band. It was a small four piece band. Uh, if if for instance, if somebody came in late. A couple of minutes late after the show had already begun, they would stop the show. The entire cast would come right out on the front of the stage, point at the people and start. And we would do You're So Vain. Huh. But they would tweak up the lyrics again to, to point out, you know, the, these people's uh, mistake, bad mistake of showing up late. And, and if anybody's uh, phone rang, cell phone rang during during the performance, again, they would stop the show. Uh, the the lead guy Matt Walker was his name. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Amazing comedic mind. Stop the show. Walk out. Take the guy's phone and start talking to whoever was on there. <laughs> I remember one night he took the phone and he's and uh, and he's saying, Yeah, yeah, he's right here. He's right here in the first row with his wife. Oh, you're his wife. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, they they just never missed a trick, and they were just so quick and so on it. And then uh, in the uh, the holiday show, the Christmas show would be things like uh, Jackson Frost, which would be the story of Jack Frost, but with music by Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson, the Jackson Five, Jackson Brown, and what was the other one? Uh, Joe Jackson. Oh, I love it. So uh, those things were hilarious too. We did uh, a Charlie James Brown Christmas. Um, <laughs> What was the other one? Uh, but but they had all kinds of uh, characters in there, like uh, the bipolar bear. It was a polar bear that was like freak out and then go from happy to sad. And, and uh, again, just uh, uh, very, very fun. And, and you know, the having done the, the having had the whole Zappa experience, that kind of thing, that spontaneous off the cuff, go for it. Anything can happen kind of uh, attitude was was like second nature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Tell me about your master classes. Uh, I have not done those for a while. Um, I, I really enjoyed doing that. We did some of those with, um, well, let me go back uh, a minute. At six months after Frank passed, summer of 94, he passed in December of 93, we got a call from some uh promoters in Germany that wanted to do a show of Zappa music and they wanted to have a group of alumni put together uh, a show and and bring it over there. And so we it, it was it was difficult because Frank had had only been gone for like, you know, 6 months and it was difficult for us to to deal with that uh and do that music again together without Frank. Um but that was the beginning of Band from Utopia. We called it Band from Utopia. Uh, and at first, we spelled it B-A-N-D, just like the normal spelling. Uh, some years later, when there started to be some issues with uh, being allowed or not allowed to play the music, uh, I don't have to go into all the details of that and, and won't. <laughs> yeah, right, right. Uh, we changed it to B-A-N-N-E-D, band as in yeah, yeah, yeah. not allowed. <laughs> But uh, so that was the beginning of that whole uh, that whole thing. Uh, I'm sorry. Help me connect back again because I had to go back to get that started. You, uh, you uh, the master classes. The master classes with uh, with one of the band uh, uh, band from Utopia tours that we did. Uh, 
I basically kind of reformed Band from Utopia in the around 2008, 2009, started that up again uh, and started to do a lot of work in, in Europe. And one of those tours that we did in Europe, we played at a, uh, a French conservatory, a French uh, music school. And they wanted us to not just do a performance, but do kind of a master class as well. And uh, so my, my particular theme that I really enjoyed doing was uh, harmony and theory from a Zappa point of view. And I would talk about his ideas concern, concerning uh, harmonizations and chord progressions and chord structures and things like that, because he had his own way of doing things. He basically, basically was self-taught. He famously said, if you want to get laid, go to college. If you want to get an education, go to the library, which is what he did. He went to the library and taught himself. Yeah. He studied uh, and, and, uh, and uh, discovered people uh, that really intrigued him musically and started to look at uh, modern classical uh, composers. Edgar Varese was one of his favorites, yep. and he uh, he studied uh, Varese's uh, what do they call it? Making music from found objects and things like that. Well, you you probably are, are aware of his his performance on the Steve Allen show, playing the bicycle before before the whole uh, Zappa and the Mothers and all that. So he was very much into experimental approaches and uh, and things like that. So. So I, I would do my talk in, in the uh, in the master class about his approach to harmony and theory. Uh, and we could get into that at some point. I, I, I don't know. Your audience is probably more engineering, technology-oriented than music-oriented. But uh, well, Maybe we'll do a, a part two of this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, you, now you went to Berkeley for, for primary. What was your major? I was a comp major. Oh, okay. Okay, so you talk. We could go deep into composition and harmony and theory. But, but that being said, like many Berkeley sort of alumni, I didn't finish. Right, I didn't either. I, I had to go out and work. I had to go out in the world and make money. I, I I couldn't stay there any longer. Yeah, well, that's kind of common, isn't it? If you're any good, you don't stay. I think. Yeah, yeah. You, you figure, okay, it's I got what I need. It's time to go. Yeah, yeah, right. And basically, right. you know, the main thing that I needed. Uh, again, from those Curtis days and those early session days was show up early, play it right the first time. And that's that, that carries over into your career. Yeah, yeah, for sure. You're mixing and mastering now. Yeah. Uh, I've been involved in it peripherally uh, ever since the beginning. I was always fascinated with it. And after uh, when we had a break for a minute between takes and such, uh, even down at Sigma in, in like 69, uh, I, I would go in the uh, uh, in the control room and and uh, talk with Joe for a minute and, and see what was in there and find out what was up and they had just gotten their two inch sixteen track at that point which still the best analog uh, format ever two inch uh, sixteen tracks on two inch tape that was like rocking uh, and I think they had just gotten there I believe it was an API console and so. Then when I started working with Bob Margaleff, I started to get involved in the mixing process. I wasn't doing hands-on very much, although I do remember a lot of uh, uh, situations, which I'm sure you took part in too, where two or three people had hands all over the place. And okay, at the chorus you got to push that, and at the uh, at the bridge you got to pull that down a little bit. And it was so much fun. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, but the pre-automation, uh, flying faders, and all that stuff. So, uh, so yeah, I was always fascinated with it, but now, I mean, it's crazy, you, you know, uh, and, uh, interesting too, because folks like, uh, like, you know, Andrew Sheps, uh, and, and, you know, the greats from the old analog days are doing things totally in the box now. And you can, because unlike, again, the early days of digital audio, where things were all kind of harsh and brittle, we have plugins now that that are such incredible emulations of analog gear, including those wonderful saturation effects that you got when you push things a little harder and, and all. Uh, it's just amazing. I mean, I, I just finished up a, a mix that I'm really proud of that, uh, and my experience also, uh, I, I've worked in, in some hybrid studios 
and also gone through the process of taking those hybrid studios through various phases of hybridization from mostly analog to a little digital to about half and half and then getting rid of more and more analog and finally ending up fully in the box. And my experience with it is now mixing fully in the box, you can make things sound deeper and wider and fuller than you could with the, in the old analog days. I mean, uh, some people will think that's sacrilege, but, uh, uh, or hyperbole or both, but, uh, that's my experience. Dave Pensato told me that he did a mix in the box and in his favorite studio, all analog, and he said he couldn't tell the difference. So. Yeah, uh, we are definitely at that point now. And uh, I mean, you have, well, for instance, uh, I remember now this goes back like 12 years ago. Uh, I, I started using, also for live gigs, I've changed my whole approach up for live gigs as well. And uh, when I do live gigs, I'm looking over at my rig right now, which I'll be using on the, on the tour coming up with King Crimson and the Zappa Band. I use uh, main stage on my laptop uh, and two MIDI keyboards that don't make any sound at all. They're strictly controllers. And I'm triggering plugins for my organ sound, my piano sound, everything, my synth sounds, everything in main stage via plugins. And uh, back in uh, when I first started doing this, I, I made a connection with a guy up in uh, Eastern Canada that I've done, done shows with every year ever since then. And the first year I worked up there, we were playing at a place called the Falls View Casino Resort right near Niagara Falls. Right, across, You can see the falls, in fact, from, yeah. from, uh, uh, from the, the doorway of the uh, casino. And the first year I went up there, they have an incredible back line. They got everything you could want. And they had a B3 and a 122 Leslie for me. And that was great. And the next year I went back up. I said, okay, we got to do a little shootout here. So I set up my laptop with the stock Logic uh, B3 emulation plugin, which I still use to this day. Uh, and we did a shootout between that and the real B3 and the Leslie. And the, uh, the house mixer guy who has golden ears and just wonderful sensibilities, he's, he's, all, he's all into very simple, clear, pure signal paths with like uh, uh, manly tube gear and things like that. And uh, uh, he's got just golden ears. And him and the producer stood out in the, in, in the hall and listened as I went back and forth between the two, and it, it didn't take but five minutes. And they said, put the B3 away. Because on that plugin, I can do everything the B3 will do, plus I can do things that the B3 won't do, which I'll talk about in a minute, but none of the drawbacks are there. For instance, if you got a B3 and a Leslie, the Leslie's behind the stage, it's covered with a big blanket, it's got a mic on it so that the damn guitar amp that's next to it is is so loud that it won't it won't leak through and and but it does leak through anyway and if somebody comes up and bumps that that mic that's picking up the bottom rotor and it and then the rotor will start banging into the mic and you know there's just all these problems with uh with that kind of gear not to mention the damn thing weighs 400 pounds and uh for instance if i want like a real spare sound with just like two draw bars out you can't overdrive the Leslie with a B3 and a real Leslie with only two drawbars. You're not, it's not going to happen. Yeah. But on the plug-in, I can just dial up the grit, dial up the overdrive, and there it is. Yeah. So I've got all the capabilities that the B3 has and none of the drawbacks. Well, I'm a B3 player myself, where I used to be. Okay. I've owned and played many B3s. We'll talk about that, too. I mean... My, my favorite Hammond is is the BC. You probably know what that oh, is. Oh, yeah. It's only made between 1939 and like 1942. Yeah. It's got two sets of tone generators. Right. And a single drawbar all by itself down at the that right end that brings in that second set of tone generators, which is slightly detuned from the main set. And that gives you this amazing swirling corral effect that you cannot get from... You know, the, uh, this was before the, uh, the vibrato, the chorus vibrato thing was uh, a, a few years later, they invented that thing. So they didn't need the, the two tone generators anymore. But I've owned a couple of those things. It was the BC 
uh, also the D, which was the, the, the church console version of that, and also the G, which was the government issue one, because this was wartime, and they had the government issue one for the like the chapels uh, uh, at the military bases. So that that's my favorite Hammond. That's the only one I'm interested in. I don't want to be. I want a BC with a with a uh, uh, an add-on like a Trek two percussion or whatever, and that is just killer. It's like and a high boy Leslie. Give me a BC and a high boy Leslie, and I'm in heaven. I'm in heaven. <laughs> and the smell, you know, it's the smell of those things with the the rotors and the oil. And yeah, that's for sure. There's some beauty in them, but it goes away fast when you have to move it. <laughs> yeah, not only that, but, you know, the contacts, uh, some of the contacts or the draw bars aren't working, you know, it's just, it can be, and if the rotor belt comes off of that bottom rotor, it's a nightmare. Yeah, right. Got two choices. Maybe if you're really lucky, you can take a coat hanger and a flashlight and get that thing to thread back on there. But most likely you're going to have to pull all the screws off the back of the Leslie, take the back off take all the screws out of the woofer, take the woofer out, reach down inside there, put that belt back on, and then put it all back together again. Yeah, I did that too many times. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Well, you know what? I think we're going to have to have part two here because there's so much I want to go over, but this is a good place to stop. You can find out more about Robert at multimartinmusic.com. That's multi, M-U-L-T-I, Martin, M-A-R-T-I-N, Music, all one word, multimartinmusic.com. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>